0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Wellness Wednesday podcast from the Rolf Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. Each of our episodes are recorded from our live events, so if you hear references to slides or visual resources, you could find links to them in the show notes. You can also find the full episodes on our Wellness Wednesday page at ralphfoundation.org, or watch on Rolf's YouTube channel. We hope that you find today's conversation to be informative, inspiring, and educational. And above all, we hope you feel connected to our community. We are in this fight together. You are not alone. Hello, and welcome to Wellness Wednesday. I'm Erin Kuhn-Krieger from the Rolf Pagreatic Cancer Foundation, and I'm here tonight with a raw and heavy heart. Yesterday, the Rolf community lost one of our own to this horrible disease, and I lost a friend. He was a devoted husband, dad, son, brother, and friend to so many. He served on Ralph's board and was a fierce advocate in sharing his story to raise awareness and raise funds for early detection research. He's left such a profound impact on me and each of us who knew him. He will be greatly missed, and we're holding his family in our hearts tonight. I know I'm here tonight knowing that I'm not alone in this feeling. I know so many of you have felt the same way about your loved ones, and that's why we're here. We're here for the hope. There's are so many researchers out there dedicated to progress and finding better outcomes for pancreatic cancer patients. And Ralph Foundation seeks out and provides funding to those showcasing the best possibilities for breakthroughs and change. For it's because of these breakthroughs, excuse me, for it's because of these breakthroughs and those to come that so many lives are going to be saved. Tonight we'll hear from Drs. He, Bissonette and McLeod from the University of Chicago. UFC is just one of the leading institutions that receives research funding from RALF. They're also our partners when we need to find immediate care, often within 24 hours for RALF families in crisis. For more information on what we fund and how you can help, please visit ralfffoundation.org. Before I introduce the doctors, I wanna mention that you could ask questions throughout tonight's session by putting them within the chat box. I'll be holding all questions until the end of the program to make sure that we're able to get to everybody. And if you don't feel comfortable putting your questions uh, in the chat, you can always email them to us at info at Tonight, we have three speakers. Dr. Mark Bissonnette is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, section of gastroenterology at the University of Chicago. Dr. Chuan He, the current John T. Wilson distinguished professor at the University of Chicago and an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and Dr. K. McLeod, a research professor and program leader of molecular mechanisms of cancer at the University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center. I'll let each of them share more about their background and experiences. So first I'd like to introduce Dr. McLeod.
1: Welcome doctor. Thanks, Erin. Before I start, I just want to add my condolences um, on the passing of Erin Colwell. Um, I think it's tragic passings like this, hopefully will um, spur us on and renew our determination to find better ways to um, diagnose and treat pancreatic cancer. Um, So first of all, I want to thank the Rolf Foundation for supporting our research this past year. Um, The work I'm going to talk about this evening Um, relates to a very specific aspect of pancreatic cancer called cancer cachexia. Um, What is cancer cachexia? I apologize for this graphic image. It is the progressive weight loss that uh, cancer patients experience. Um, It affects many cancers, uh, including pancreatic cancer, but as I'll come on to discuss, it's particularly prevalent in pancreatic cancer, and is one of the causes of patient mortality. It essentially involves the loss of skeletal muscle mass, um, also not always, but sometimes loss of fat mass as well. Uh, Critically, it it is not reversed by increasing uh, food intake or altered nutrition. Um, And the reason that there's a lot of focus on it uh, as in terms of understanding how to um, limit mortality from pancreatic cancer, it's important because it affects how the patient responds to cancer therapy and the the effective dose of therapy that patients can receive. So as I mentioned, it is a feature of pancreatic cancer. In fact, pancreatic cancer is the type of cancer most linked to cancer cachexia, to muscle wasting, 85% of all pancreatic cancer patients present with cachexia. And unlike other cancers where this is generally a feature of late-stage disease, with pancreatic cancer, um, over 50% of patients who present with early-stage or earlier stage and locally advanced cancer already exhibit cachexia. So it starts earlier in pancreatic cancer than it does for other cancers. Um, what is uh, also true is that the amount of weight loss that patients experience um, predicts disease outcome in pancreatic cancer. The more weight lost, the, more, the, the shorter the, the prognosis, the worse the prognosis. Um, and surprised, you might be surprised to, to realize that, in fact, about 30% of pancreatic cancer patients actually die from the cachexia that causes uh, heart failure. The heart obviously is a muscle as well, uh, and muscle weakness and not the tumor itself. Um, and currently, there is no medical intervention for uh, cachexia. So this is where um, we have focused our research interests in the last uh, year and a half um, to hopefully um, make a contribution to better understand what is causing cachexia and to hopefully mitigate against it to block it. Um, This diagram I show here um, kind of summarizes what we think is going on um, where the tumor growing in the pancreas is releasing signals of some kind and what those signals are, we do not know, um, that circulate to the muscle and cause the muscle to break down. And then the the breakdown products from the muscle are thought perhaps, although again, we really don't understand, to somehow promote the growth of the tumor. So in looking at cachexia, there are some fairly well-established markers of cachexia of muscle wasting, including these two genes here, a Trojan one and mrf one These are both proteins uh, that are known as E3 ubiquitin ligases. Uh, these are enzymes that are involved in degrading protein and are contribute to the degradation of muscle. Um, we looked at this, uh, and this is both in human patients and in mouse models, um, and uh, together with work from other people, um, we have shown that this gene, BNIP3, also appears to be upregulated specifically in the muscle of cachectic uh, animals and, and patients. Um, and as you can see here, the full change in BNIP3 is actually over 100 fold greater than what you see for these two other established uh, cachexia genes, or atrogenes as they're called. So, question what is BNIP3? Um, VNIP3 is a protein that is found primarily at the mitochondria, the powerhouse, the energy factory of the cell, and it plays a role in promoting the turnover of mitochondria uh, through a process known as autophagy. Um, This involves the formation of these double membrane structures that engulf mitochondria, to form a double membrane vesicle that fuses with the lysosome, which contains degradative enzymes um, that degrade the mitochondria, resulting in the li- release of amino acids, nucleotides, and lipids uh, that allows the cell to continue growing and surviving. So, bnip 3 um, which is the focus of what I'm going to talk about tonight, and its role in cancer cachexia, um, functions at the mitochondria, Uh, in this manner to promote the turnover of mitochondria by autophagy. So this, uh, building on the model I presented uh, earlier, led us to propose that the tumor growing in the pancreas is releasing a signal that circulates to the muscle to upregulate BNIP3. We do not know what that signal is, but one of the things we're focused on is understanding what is inducing the upregulation of BNIP-3 specifically in muscle. This then leads, at least in our hypothesis, to increase mitophagy in the muscle, causing degradation, further degradation of the muscle, and release of metabolites and possibly other molecules that circulate back to the tumor to promote tumor growth. So the work I'm going to talk about. Uh, present here is the work of two uh, talented young ladies in the lab, uh, Georgina Mantinelli, uh, a postdoctoral scholar, and Elizabeth Foster, uh, who's actually an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. And this work has been, as I mentioned, kindly supported by by the Rolf Foundation. So we generated um, a model of cancer cachexia. First of all, we generated this, we genetically engineered this mouse model in which bnip 3 this gene of interest in cachexia, is specifically knocked out or deleted in the muscle as a result of breeding it to this muscle-specific uh, Cre strain. I don't wanna go into the details, but this is a completely novel and unique uh, tool that we developed uh, for our studies. What we were intrigued to see and consistent with our hypothesis that indeed bnip 3 was involved in promoting cachexia is if we just look at muscle uh, atrophy in this mouse, in this case in response to overnight fasting, you can see here on the left the control fed mice have big juicy muscle fibers. But after fasting for 24 hours, you can see that the fibres are have got a smaller cross-sectional area, and there's a lot more space between the muscle fibres. In contrast, when Bnip3 is knocked out, there's a there is no uh, atrophy; the muscle appears to remain intact, um, and there's no loss of mass. So this was preliminary data that we were on the right track, but obviously this is just uh, fasting, and that is not what we were most interested in. Um, We went on to cross these muscle-specific knockout of BNIP3 to a pancreatic cancer model. Uh, In this model, the KRAS oncogene, which is the key driving oncogene in human pancreatic cancer is activated and P53 tumor suppressor, which is one of the main tumor suppressors in pancreatic cancer is inactivated. When we looked at the effect of knocking out BNIP3 in the muscle of these mice with pancreatic cancer, we were first of all validated as we anticipated that Bnip3 is induced in these mouse mice, mice with pancreatic cancer. You can see this uh, increase in Bnip3 expression, but when Bnip3 is not knocked out, as you would expect, it is we do not detect its expression. More interestingly, um, we see decreased expression of this atrogene, this gene that we know is driving cachexia, or one of the genes driving cachexia, um, that is decreased in expression when bnip 3 is knocked out. Um, In addition to this, we took the mice that had developed uh, pancreatic cancer and started to monitor muscle strength, uh, clearly important in terms of The muscle uh, decay muscle, uh, how muscle decays, both in these mouse models, but also in patients. Um, Amongst one of the one of the assays we perform, and it's not the only assay, but one that um, I'm going to talk about uh, this evening, we measure grip strength of the mice using this device here, um, which allows us to assess the, the muscle tone and the muscle strength of the animal. Other assays involve putting the mice on treadmills and measuring uh, respiration rates of the mice. Um, But bottom line, the the, the key finding here is that deleting BNIP3 in muscle protects the muscle from um, both atrophy, but also maintains the strength of the muscle. Um, Again, uh, in support of our our idea that BNIP3 is a a key target uh, for preventing cachexia. Um, when we measured muscle uh, area, this is the cross-sectional area of muscle fibers, again, here you can see, uh, again, these studies are, are still ongoing uh, there's a relatively small number of mice here, but uh, we are accumulating more data uh, every week uh, that's consistent with this, showing that knocking out BNIP3 in the muscle of these mice with pancreatic cancer protects the cross-sectional area. Again, you see um, the mice are maintaining the cross-sectional area of muscle fibers. And this is unrelated to overall body mass. Um, This is very specific to the muscle. So this was, you know, confirmed our hypothesis and we were happy and um, relatively excited to to make this finding. What was even more uh, exciting was not just that uh, loss of vnip 3 in muscle was maintaining muscle mass and strength, but it actually also, as you can see from this graph, was also causing the tumor to grow less. So this is a key finding, um, and, and one um, that's completely novel in the field, the idea that you can affect tumor growth, or pancreatic tumor growth, but through effects on on muscle and bean at three expression in the muscle. Um, so this was a, a really, um, Very exciting finding for us this past year. Um, So, this led us to our um, uh, hypothesis I I mentioned before, uh, where our now more validated by the the data from these mouse models, that BNIP3 is driving cachexia in the muscle. Again, um, there's this two-way traffic from the tumor to the muscle, and then from the muscle to the pancreas and the pancreatic tumor. And that by inhibiting this process in muscle, we're actually stopping the supply of nutrients or other molecules to the tumor and thereby uh, uh, inhibiting the growth of the tumor in addition to maintaining the tone of the muscle in in these animals. So at the moment, one of the things that we've started looking for is uh, assessing the plasma from these mice and looking for differences in circulating metabolites that could explain how the muscle is supplying the tumor with with, uh, pro-growth nutrients or other molecules. Um, Also, we're looking for uh, alterations in uh, circulating cytokines that potentially could be inducing BNIP3 in muscle. So again, we're looking at this two directional traffic, both in terms of what is the muscle doing for the tumor and what is the tumor doing to co-opt the muscle into uh, serving the tumor, the growth of the tumor. So obviously, these are mice. Um, they, we use these mice as essentially a discovery tool. Um, but our, obviously, in the long run, our goal is to leverage what we find in these in this models uh, to understand what is happening with cachexia in, in pancreatic cancer patients. Um, And for that, um, our our work, we're we're lucky in being at the University of Chicago, which has a very um, longstanding and a very deep um, tumor bank um, of not just pancreatic tumors, but also, uh, interestingly, I was delighted when we found this, that we actually have this resource the doctors here have had the foresight over decades to collect um, muscle from patients at the same time as they're resecting pancreatic tumors. And also we have serum uh, from patients. So we will be able to hopefully validate whatever we find in the mice as driving the induction of b in muscle and uh, following on from that, whatever the muscle is producing to feed the tumor, we'll be able to validate that by looking at these patient samples, both the tumor, the the circulating blood, and also muscle. The key question then, of course, because obviously our genetically engineered mouse models use genetic tools uh, to inhibit bnip 3 In patients, we need to find a biochemical approach uh, to to inhibiting bnip 3 The question is how can we do that in in patients? Um, And this is where I return to this MRF1 gene, which as I mentioned is an E3 ubiquitin ligase that is upregulated in muscle of of pancreatic cancer patients. Um, And so we want to exploit this this enzyme to degrade BNIP3 using this approach, which has become um, very, uh, it's a recent approach that's been developed in a number of different place labs. Um, But this is a unique application of this technology, which is called Protax, where we engineer an artificial um, peptide linking um, in our case, the transmembrane domain of bnip 3 which will bind to bnip 3 link it via peptide to a ligand that is normally recognized by this E3 ubiquitin ligase. And what that will do will result in the proteolytic degradation of bnip 3 at the proteasome. We're essentially hijacking this muscle-specific enzyme, which is upregulated in cachectic muscle. Um, to degrade the protein that we think is is driving the whole process. Um, And so um, this approach, again, we're working with our colleagues in chemistry to develop this this approach, but this is our longer-term goal in terms of uh, leveraging our our findings from the mouse model to to apply it to to human patient um, treatment and and, um, outcomes. Um, So with that, um, I'll stop and uh, I'll uh, take questions at the end, as Erin mentioned. Um, But it's now my pleasure to introduce my colleagues at the University of Chicago, uh, Dr. Xuan Hu and uh, Dr. Mark Bissonette, in the Department of Medicine. Um, Xuan and Mark.
2: Thank you all. I don't know if you can hear me or not. I'm a gastroenterologist at the University of Chicago and very interested in pancreatic cancer and colon cancer. And I've been grateful for the Rolf Foundation and for an opportunity to uh, to discuss this with you. So um, let me see if I can get my screen shared here. So briefly, I'm going to tell you about our research that, um, that I've been doing in collaboration with Dr. Chuan He to make a diagnostic test to diagnose pancreatic cancer at earlier stages and potentially even pre pancreatic lesions uh, and to distinguish those that are more likely to go on to cancer uh, versus those that are, are less, less likely to do that. Um, so, um, oops. That didn't work. Sorry. I need To advance the slide here, OK. Um, so as, as many of you know, pancreatic cancers are an increasingly serious problem in the United States. They're, they're thought to be perhaps the most serious malignancy to, as a cause of death in the next 30 years. And so it's a rising incidence, and it's a serious problem. Uh, There are several premalignant precursors of pancreatic cancer, including the uh, pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasms or panins and the uh, interpancreatic uh, mucinous uh, uh, producing lesions, the MCNs and the IPMNs. Uh, These lesions are thought to progress over time. And uh, we're interested in developing a blood test that would differentiate pancreatic cancers from normal normal, or at least non-malignant lesions. And eventually to be able to detect premalignant lesions as well. Um, so uh, DNA circulates from the tumor and from all organs of the body into the bloodstream and, and carries with it many signals that can be used for important diagnostic tests. One of the important bases in DNA is cytosine. Uh, cytosine uh, can be methylated in the 5 position to make 5-methylcytosine, or can be hydroxymethylated in the 5 position to make 5-hydroxymethylcytosine. In the first part of the talk, I'm going to talk about this particular residue, 5-hydroxymethylcytosine, that Dr. Chuan He discovered and created an elegant way of, of, of assaying in the blood. Um, these modifications are quite stable and they carry important information because DNA coming from the tumor has has these modifications that can be detected in the bloodstream. Um, Basically, the um, DNA from diseased tissue, from pancreatic tissue, is released into the blood. And using a technology that Dr. He invented, the nano-HMC seal technology, uh, he has been able to capture these residues and detect them in the blood. Uh, Previously, this required a a very large amount of DNA that was beyond the the amount that circulated in the blood. So this was a a really novel and exciting test that he developed. Um, So blood is taken from the patient that carries important DNA signature from the blood of the cancer. The 5-hydroxymethylcytosine is first uh, conjugated to a glucosyl residue, uh, which contains an azide molecule on it. This can be captured by another molecule called biotin with click chemistry. And then the biotin can be brought down with streptavidin beads, which allow it then to be amplified and, and sequenced to look to see throughout the genome where these 5-hydroxymethylcytosines five, five are occurring. Because as I mentioned in cancer, they are, they're altered from the normal state and can be detected as such. Um, so if you if this is an example of of a gene, a normal gene that has five hydroxymethylcytosine labels on it, in this, in the cancer there's an increase in the number of the five hydroxymethylcytosines in some genes, as in, as a, as an example in this gene one, whereas in this gene there's actually a loss of five hydroxymethyl, so there's a, lo- a lower number, and so the point of the test that that Dr. He is, is working on with us is to develop a way to measure these differences up and down of 5 cytosine that could be used as a diagnostic sig- signature for the cancers. Um, they also discovered that there's a relationship between the 5 cytosine and the gene expression. So e- each tissue has its own unique sort of expression levels of genes, which, which essentially cause that tissue to be what it is in the case of pancreas, a unique, unique, unique organ for pancreas. And there's a relationship between the, five hydro- the gene expression levels shown on the y-axis and the 5-hydroxymethylcytosine levels shown on the x-axis. And when that was examined in relationship to other known markers of, of gene transcription, for example, the uh, acetylated histone 3 uh, lysine 27 protein, which is associated with genes that are undergoing active transcription, there was a close association with increasing amounts of 5-hydroxymethylcytosine and increasing amounts of this marker in the histones. And this has been a finding that's been been verified by numerous other labs. That 5-hydroxymethylcytosine essentially marks genes that are undergoing active transcription. Um, So basically the test begins with blood from the doctor's office. The DNA is isolated on silica columns. PCR adapters are placed on the the DNA in order to be able to PCR amplify it up later on. The 5-hydroxymethylcytosines are first labeled with a glucosyl molecule. And then those are reacted with biotin that binds to the azide on the glucose glucose moiety. The the biotin is then captured by streptavidin uh, with beads that are coated with streptavidin. And then the DNA with the PCR adapters is amplified and sequenced to give rise to a, uh, to where then looking throughout the genome, one can look to see how the 5hmC signature has changed in, from from normal to a cancer patient. Uh, we had the a, a, a great opportunity recently. Uh, uh, we applied and were granted access to the samples from the PLCO study. This is a study that was initiated back in 1993, uh, PLCO, for the diagnosis of prostate, lung, colon, and ovary. And it was to test whether all the screening tests that were done at the time, chest x-rays for lung cancer, flexible sigmoidoscopies for colon cancer, CA-125 and vaginal ultrasounds for ovarian cancer, and PSA and digital rectal exams for prostate cancer would be protective against these cancers. And I won't summarize the numerous findings from the study, but suffice to say that that these very valuable samples taken from 155,000 people who were at the time free of cancer, and then then they did serial blood samples for five years, and then have followed them over time. And out of that 155,400 individuals were, were to go on to develop pancreatic cancer. So we have blood samples from patients prior to their clinical presentation, which may serve to validate the, the ability of the test we're working on to diagnose early pancreatic cancer. Um, so this is some of so we've, we've been also doing our own prospective studies, collecting samples from patients at the University of Chicago and also from uh, the um, f- from um, California with Dr. Guayel's help. And in our own patients, we have about uh, 80 patients with um, stage one or two colon pancreatic cancer, about 15 um, patients with uh, early pancreatic lesions that are prior to, uh, to the pancreatic cancer. They're comprised mostly of patients 60 to 80 years old. They're predominantly male, but we have 40% of them female, and the race is predominantly Caucasian, but we have a substantial number of African-Americans as well, about 15% of the population. And the analysis that we're working on now will incorporate not only the 5-HMC distributions to make the diagnosis in the blood, but it will also look at factors such as diabetes, obesity, tobacco, and alcohol that are important risk factors for pancreatic cancer. So this is some of our preliminary data. Um, In the first panel, uh, we, we're showing pancreatic cancer patients here in blue. Each, each column, if you will, represents a separate patient, and then controls are shown in green. And each row represents a different gene in the genome. And we've measured the 5-HMC expression levels of those genes by, by next-generation sequencing, and this is in the blood now. So what you see is if, there, if the expression of 5-HMC is low, the gene is colored pseudocolored blue. If it's high, it's pseudocolored red. And so in this set of genes, uh, in the controls, there's relatively lower 5 HMC as denoted by the blue color compared to the patients with cancer. Their, their 5HMC in the blood is higher. And conversely, there are other genes uh, in the blood and the controls that were higher in 5HMC, whereas the cancer, the, the cancer patients had lower 5 HMCs for those genes. And if you separate, if you do a further analysis by principal component analysis, that looks at the statistical difference, distance between these five HMC loci in the genome, you can show that most of the cancer patients are segregated to the right here on this analysis, as opposed to the controls to the left. So this is a test that I think ultimately will be very useful to to be able to make a blood diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, but we still have work to do obviously. Then we turned to the premalignant lesions, things like the the IPMN lesions, and we compared those to control patients versus the IPMN patients and did a similar analysis in the blood now for 5-HMC circulating. And again, the high levels are denoted by red, the lower levels by blue. And again, we had this another signature that that distinguished the control patients with low 5-HMC for these genes and higher 5-HMC for these genes. and similarly, another group of genes that had higher 5 HMC for the controls and lower for the IPMNs for the premalignant pancreatic lesions. And again, if you did a, a principal component analysis, again you found that the controls were to the right, and the in this case, the premalignant lesions were to the left. So that although there's some overlap, we think that as we get better with this test and incorporate some genomic features in the tissue, that we'll be able to have a test that will diagnose premalignant lesions and in pancreatic cancer. And this is a similar analysis comparing pancreatic cancers in blue to pre-malignant lesions in orange. And again, uh, we have a limited number of patients, but there's a, a, a sense that there will be a separation, uh, a tendency of separating the pre lesions in blue from the pancreatic cancer shown in red. Um, sorry. Um, we, we then turn to the tissue. This, the, all the studies I've showed up to this point were blood studies, which is the most important tissue in terms of making diagnoses and, and following risk factors. But we also wanted to look at the tissue because there are probably important signals of 5-HMC in the tissue itself of the pancreas, which may help us guide selection of those we focus on in the blood. And so for these, te- for these studies, we, did, we compared normal pancreas to, patient, to the IPMN lesions in the pancreas for 5-HMC. And again, we found that there was, again, a signature that in patients with, with a normal uh, panc- normal pancreas, there was relatively low 5-HMC expression for these genes compared to high expression in the IPMN lesions, so the premalignant lesions in the pancreas. And conversely, other genes had a decrease in their, an increase in the, in the normal control and a decrease in the patients who had premalignant lesions of the pancreas. And what's even more important, uh, ultimately, would be to to, to be able to distinguish those that are high-risk lesions that are pre-malignant in the pancreas from those that are low-risk lesions, so-called high-grade versus low-grade dysplasia. So in a preliminary small number of patients, we looked at that for five HMC signals. These are, again, now in tissue now, not in blood. And we're looking at high-grade lesions, uh, which are, have about a 70% chance of progressing to pancreatic cancer within 10 years, and comparing it to low-grade to low lesions that have about a 20% chance of progressing to pancreatic cancer. And again, you see in the 5-HMC signals in the tissue, there are some genes that are upregulated in the more dysplastic tissue with respect to 5-HMC expression compared to the low, less dysplastic lesions um, and on the right, and, and conversely, there are other genes that are, have a down regulation of 5-HMC in the tissue that are, that are at higher risk to progress, and these tissues have a lower, have a, in the control case, they have a higher expression of 5-HMC. So we, we think that ultimately comparing the, the tissue and the blood will be useful, and I'll come to that in a moment. Right now, with uh, the help of the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center and the University of Chicago, we've continued to accrue more samples. Uh, We're working on developing enough patients for a training cohort so that we'll have a good signature of the things that I've showed you before of these five HMC levels being high or low relative to controls. And then we'll, we'll, once we have a signature based upon the pancreatic cancer and the control patients, and and our controls incidentally will include chronic pancreatitis, which can be a, a confounder in this whole field because the these patients present with pain similar to pancreatic cancer. They have abnormal CAT scans and abnormal imaging. And so we're hoping to use them as a good control to develop a test that will distinguish those patients from the pancreatic cancer patients. And we also have, of course, the the other valuable samples that I mentioned earlier, the PLCO biorepository that will have at least 200 samples from patients who went on to present with pancreatic cancer to compare those to to age and, and gender match patients who were followed over many years and ne- never developed pancreatic cancer. Um, so ultimately, we want to integrate the five hmC signals from the blood and and from the and from the tissue because we think that the combination will enhance the identification and prioritization of disease-specific features that are captured in the cell-free DNA. So the test will ultimately be a blood test, but we think that the tissue will give us some guidance to make it a, an even better blood test. And as I mentioned before, the these premalignant lesions come in two varieties: those that are Thought to be at high risk to progress, those would be, for example, the main duct IPMNs that have about a 70% chance of progressing, and those that are thought to have a low risk of progression, such as the branch duct IPMNs. And once these have been identified, if we have a blood test that would allow us to characterize whether they are high risk or low risk, we would know how often to surveil these patients and how careful and how soon we, we might need to move towards surgery. Um, so we, for the risk stratification training, we're also doing studies with uh, City of Hope, where we're collecting plasma from high-risk patients with uh, these premalignant precursors, as well as um, as as well as the um, sorry, as well as uh, blood from sorry, I'm in the wrong direction here, uh, as well as blood from patients with low-risk lesions and healthy controls, and we're also getting tissue from these patients uh, that we'll be able to use for genomic typing of the 5-HMC in the pancreatic tissue to compare to the blood 5-HMC signatures in in the blood. Um, So our options ultimately for this test will be to continue with the next generation sequencing based assay, which which I think is quite strong and a very good assay, or to develop some sort of a PCR-based assay for a limited number of, of loci that are identified as as part of the signature. And in that case, it would be more translatable to to the clinic. And in that case, we would do the same sort of workflow where we'd take blood from the patient, we would isolate the DNA, we would selectively label the 5 HMC we would use click chemistry to pull it down. But instead of using next generation sequencing, we would do PCR to amplify up the loci that that we've identified as either being upregulated for 5-HMC in these genes in the circulation compared to controls or to be downregulated in the 5-HMC compared to control. And if we could identify a number of loci that would show this sort of a differential expression of 5-HMC up or down, we think we might be able to make a very rapid assay that would be affordable and could be used repeatedly to follow risk, risk assessment in these patients. Um, we're, we're, we'll do an independent validation of this test as well, where we'll be collecting samples of blood and also uh, to, uh, uh, this will be uh, blood samples from high-risk patients, uh, with PPNs, uh, malignant pancreatic neoplasms, as well as pancreatic cancer patients and our control group of chronic pancreatitis and healthy controls. And, and so now I want to turn this over to Dr. Chuan He, who's the inventor of all this technology and has made all this possible, and i have
3: him take over from here. Thanks, Mark. Uh, as Mark introduced, uh, my lab works on, really, a uh, method development. Um,
0: let me just bring up the slides. Um, because I saw Mark going to show the slides, but that's okay, I can do it. Yes, I just uh, oh, uh set the... No, no. um. We've been
3: working with Mark to uh, develop these tests. Um, and um, in addition to hydrosome muscle C on DNA, there's also five muscle C as Mark introduced. In fact, there are limited number of uh, clinical tests uh, that utilize uh, five hydrosome muscle C and five muscle C. And the one that being used clinically is actually um, five muscle C for colorectal cancer. This was the reason why we started this collaboration with Mark. So some of you probably heard the um, which actually measures fimasto C. Now 5 muscle C is a new DNA modification we think there's a lot of promises, but we also want to look at the fimasto C, which is a stable mark and has been already cleared by FDA for uh, a few cancer early diagnosis. The major problem for fimasto C has been the, the method applied called bisulfite sequencing leads to um, extensive um, degradation of, of DNA. so if you draw blood, isolate cell-free DNA. Um, it really requires lots of blood. And then because of this DNA degradation from this chemical treatment, uh, the signal to noise has always been a major problem. So we recently invented this new method we called linear application-based bisulfite sequencing. It's actually a very simple idea, but it works extremely well. Now the idea is that uh, in the cell-free DNA, the DNA derived from tumors, small tiny amount, uh, what we what, what we do in this method we linearly amplify this DNA so uh, from the small upon amount of a tumor derived DNA it amplifies uh, to a larger portion and then we apply uh, exponential amplification so these a small amount of tumor derived DNAs will not get, get lost. Now this idea works extremely well um, in in the recent test, as you can see here. Um, with 100 nanograms of uh, a, a DNA with traditional method, you get very good data, right? Uh, however, with one nanogram of DNA, often we get about a few nanograms from several meals of our blood. And with one nanogram of DNA, you can see the signal looks very sparse With 100 picograms is almost gone, okay? Uh, however, if you go to our uh, method, trying to get this move. If you go to our method, um, as you can see, um, with one nanograms of, of DNA, we see very good signal, uh, similar to 100 nanograms with uh, current uh, bisulfide sequencing. So uh, this really pro- uh, improves the sensitivity, and most importantly, the coverage of, uh, of the uh, sequencing. So we're excited about this uh, new method. Uh, this is the results from the recent self-ready DNA run we, uh, applied this to pancreatic cancer patient uh, sample versus healthy control. Again, we don't need a lot of blood samples, one mu of DNA, way enough for us to perform this whole genome analysis. And we have not sequenced this very, very deep uh, to identify new biomarkers. We only did a test around these results will come back actually yesterday. Uh, this was the reason it took us a while to put the slides together, but I want to show you the preliminary results. Uh, this is a five muscle C methylation. Again, as Mark introduced to you already, we're looking at the differential uh, methylation markers and you can clearly see, uh, we see very different um, distributions of, of these um, uh, five muscle C profiles or marked mark um, self DNA between these two cohorts of uh, uh, samples. We're excited about this. sequences uh, deeper. We're going to learn a lot of not only attend the biomarkers, but also hopefully learn the immuno, many aspects of, of biology from these patients. So with that, I turn back to Mark. Yeah,
2: okay. Thanks, John, that was elegant work. Um, so
3: the, it,
2: our, really our goal in this whole project and, and the Roll Foundation has been hugely helpful to help us with this, is the development of a liquid bio, biopsy assay where we'll be able to take the patient's blood and identify early pancreatic cancers, and ultimately, even high-risk lesions that are not yet cancers to be able to follow over time. So currently, we're identifying a panel of the most robust 5-HMC and 5-MC modified regions throughout the genome. we plan to use the next generation sequencing and the PCR-based assays to determine how rel- what, the, what the sensitivity and the specificity of the test is, and we'll use an independent cohort of patients and, and controls to validate the assays, and ultimately to move it forward, eventually to clinical development so that we can get eventually an, a, a test that can be, can be used for, widely for patients to, to benefit them. And that's the, that's the goal. Um, can you go to the next slide, Uh, uh So basically, uh, we've, we've received uh, already from the NIH permission to get these PLCO samples from patients who have had latent uh, pancreatic cancers but had not yet presented to see if our test will work for them, if we, we can diagnose pre- a, a pre-diagnostic tests for pancreatic cancer. And we're continuing to work now with... Uh, with Chuan on this 5-HMC and 5-MC technology so that we can get signatures that will be even more reliable than either one alone would be. And our plan is to submit an R01 application, multi-investigator application to to carry this forward as well. Next slide. Okay, just wanna thank you all for listening and thank you for your attention. And we'll, I guess we're open for questions for for Kay's talk and, and Chuan and myself.
0: Thank you so much um, to to all three of you, Um, such impressive and and important information coming out um, of of your research findings. We'll we'll open up now for questions, and um, we've had some that have come through during our talk, and if you have additional questions, please continue to send them through in the chat. Otherwise, you can always email them to Foundation, or I'm sorry, info at ralphfoundation.org, and we'll be sure to get to them. Um, so, if, if each of you can please talk about how um, how has pancreatic cancer research evolved during your tenure? What what is what have you seen um, throughout the time? Well, Doctor, let's start with you. Yeah.
2: Uh, with it, from a clinical point of view, pancreatic ca- cancer continues to be a major major challenging problem because it's not it's diagnosed late. Essentially, it's buried so deeply in the retroperitoneum that it doesn't signal that someone has pancreatic cancer generally until it invades the nerves and has become unresectable at that point. So I think we really need some way to diagnose it at a much earlier stage. And um, it, things like IPMNs are helpful in terms of CAT scans and, and doing EGD and EUSs to look for these lesions, but that that in itself is 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 not, not not a good screening test. If we could screen the blood for something that the tumor was releasing at an early stage, we would have a far better chance of making a real difference in people's lives. So that's, I, I think that we're still struggling with finding a good test to make this diagnosis early. Dr.
1: Cloud, uh, would you like to weigh in? Yes, no, I totally agree with Mark. I, I think if you look at other cancers, early diagnosis is what's made the difference in terms of, um, in, patient outcomes and survival. Um, Having said that also, obviously for people who are not, unfortunately not diagnosed early, we still need to improve um, how we're going to treat those advanced cancers. Um, There's been some progress in um, identifying compounds that will inhibit RAS signaling, for instance, RAS being the, the driver oncogene. But unfortunately, a lot of these uh, existing or those developed strategies um, lead to resistance after time. And so they, they, they've not stayed the course as, as, as successful therapies. Um, I think the other approach that a number of people are taking, clinicians are taking is combining different therapies and looking for synergy between existing therapies and in, in treating cancers. But we really, we really need more breakthroughs and more, more new ideas about how to, how to treat the disease. And um, I think what's encouraging is that the public has, I think, to realize that this is a growing challenge um, and that there's a lot more resources going into pancreatic resor- research, including money, but also importantly, people. Um, I think the number of research groups um, working in this space has increased and in, certainly in the time um, that I've been here at the University of Chicago, I, I, in the, the early days when I was here, the focus was very much on breast cancer and prostate cancer and I think pancreatic cancer, I think, People sense the urgency. Um, so um, I think that's positive. Great. Dr. He.
3: Yeah, for me, it's because of uh, Dr. Mark Bissonet, because uh, you know, um, we always learn from our physician scientists what are the major medical problems and how what kind of tools we need. Here at the University of Chicago, a major benefit is we have chemists. Uh, and bioengineers next door to our physician scientists and cancer biologists such as K, so it's really integrated equal uh, really nice uh, system um, yeah I, I think uh, some of the problems we facing in clinic um, just require better method and and often we, we do have that kind of a method available we just need to figure out ways to uh, um, you know, rebrand them and and make them into the, the clinical applications so um, I'm Fairly confident in, in a year or 2 or have very reliable biomarkers from both C and FMs. Okay,
0: great. Because that was the actually the next question was, what's the timeline um, that you see this being able to affect the, the general public? So, if it's if you have the if you have it in a year or two, um, how long till it until the public are able to benefit from it?
3: Right, that's a good question. So the technology, uh, we uh, the intellectual property is owned by the University of Chicago. Actually, there is a company uh, in the Bay Area already uh, started. Uh, um, I think they got FDA approval to perform um, pretty wide uh, test, specifically for pancreatic cancer early diagnosis using our technology. Um, so um, this is very complementary uh, with us. Um, and uh, I expect in a year or two uh, there'll be really interesting results from them and us. And we also have this new C method I'm also quite excited about. So um, I would say in a year or two, uh, we'll have pretty reliable markers. Um, I I see questions some of um, um, the audience are interested. You're always welcome to come to University of Chicago. Um, Maybe in a half year, one year, um, we have markers ready.
0: Incredible. Do you feel that the potential uh, liquid biopsy testing would also be helpful for screening patients who are germline BRCA1 or BRCA2 pathogenic variants?
3: Um, Well, I I also want to back up a little bit. uh, To do a general screen of pancreatic cancer is economically not feasible or not beneficial people have done that. So this type of early screen for pancreatic cancer is best to the high risk population, if I'm correct. Mark and uh, Kay can correct me. Um, There's such a calculation. Or for colorectal cancer, if you're 50 years older, then it's beneficial. But then for pancreatic cancer, it's really for high risk. People with um, acute diabetes or with um, family history of pancreatic cancer. For BRCA mutations, I think there are other ways, that's really testing of mutation. Um, there are other very sensitive ways to detect brca mutation. For germline mutation, I'm actually not so sure. Um, so I have to let Kay and, and Mark answer this question, so they they know better.
1: Yeah, there's a Merck test for BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations. Um, I think it's just a PCR test on, on circulating lymphocytes or I've actually been tested for BRCA1, BRCA2 myself, um, and was a negative control, fortunately. But yeah, it's it's a fairly routine thing that can be done anyway. So,
2: I think maybe the question was more whether the BRCA1 or BRCA2 were at risk for pancreatic cancer, and should they be screened for pancreatic cancer? Was that, is that what you were asking, Erin, or...?
0: Uh, it's saying, um, would it be a helpful screening for patients who have germline yeah. BRCA1 or BRCA2 so, variants? I'm not an expert
2: in this. I don't. I think BRCA1 and BRCA2 do have an increased risk for pancreatic cancer, but it's a fairly small increase. I think that family histories uh, and, uh, and other things such as new onset diabetes, for example, insulin-dependent diabetes in an adult is, is a much higher risk factor for pancreatic cancer. But certainly if they I think that's a good question, and and I think that any familial mutation in the germline that raises the risk of pancreatic cancer becomes eligible as a risk stratification for this kind of test.
1: So BRCA2 is a major risk factor for PDAC. Um, The reason I know that is actually Hedy Kindler here has got a clinical trial running for um, combining the use of um, PARP or using PARP inhibitors for pancreatic cancer Mm -hmm. um, based on the fact that there's a subset of patients that do have BRCA2 mutations. Mm -hmm. It seems to be mainly BRCA2 for whatever reason, not BRCA1. Okay,
0: Thank you. Our next question um, comes in saying, I have four members of my father's family that passed away from pancreatic cancer. I'm 57 now will these tests be available soon or what should be my first steps to somewhat protect myself?
3: That, I think uh, we're gonna have some data in the half a year, one year, but then uh, to really get this into clinical t- test is a long journey, right? Are different layers of uh, um, steps we have. Um, but yeah, you're welcome to uh, contact uh, dr bizane and jubalad as a volunteer be happy to include it for our, our our studies and, mm-hmm. and that you know we can we can always compare those samples with, with our, our data and and have a risk of, um, evaluation not sure if that's the you know the correct answer mark
2: mm-hmm. i know I think that's one 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 approach for sure and I'd, we'd be happy to do that um, the the company you mentioned out in the Bay Area is that Solera? is that the, is that the company?
3: Blue Star Genomics. Uh, they're using this muscle c. Remember? So
2: would they? Would that be another place that she might have her blood tested? I don't know.
3: <laughs> well, probably not here, there, but you, they can always come here. Um, we we can accommodate a few, I guess. We're happy to we're happy to do that. So,
1: isn't there a clinic? Doesn't Sonia Cooper run a cancer risk clinic for? She does. Um, yeah.
2: I don't think she's focusing on blood tests for pancreatic cancer, but, but she does have a high risk cancer clinic and could be seen in that clinic and we could certainly collect the blood and, and analyze it.
0: Yeah, I think you know, all of these folks are um, obviously anxious and, and want some good screening to, to make sure that, you know they, they can do what they can. Uh, our next questions uh, has to do with um, your thoughts on the newly approved Imray. Uh, Pan can blood test versus what you're working on. What can you can you elaborate or talk a little bit about what the MRA Pan can blood test is, um, if you know, um, and um, how if it varies from the work that you're doing right now.
2: Which one? I'll defer to you. You probably know more about that test.
3: <laughs> Actually, I don't know much about that test. Is that a self dna test that come out of um, uh, Illumina, or it's a different one?
0: that I'm, I'm not familiar with. We could come back to that one. Um, so how early um, are you anticipating, like stage-wise, pancreatic cancer will be able to be detected in the blood work?
2: Well, that's a great question and we don't have an answer. Um, I mean, we're looking, in, in the case of colon, we have advanced adenomas, advanced polyps that we're, that we're seeing signatures from. And in our preliminary data, it looks as if the more advanced dysplastic ones have a different signature from the less advanced, less dysplastic. But until we have larger numbers there, and it's really hard to say, it's it's a work in progress. I'm hoping that the 5MC will actually add a lot to this story. I think that it it will. I'm, I'm encouraged by already what Chuan has done with 5MC to suggest that that may give us earlier signals and more robust signals than just 5-HMC alone.
0: Dr. McLeod, this one's for you. Uh, I know that there's not a confirmed successful treatment of cachexia. Is there any biochemical support for fish oil and increased protein to help ameliorate the progression of muscle degradation?
1: I'm not aware of any work with fish oil or omega-3. Um, I mean, increase protein, I mean, Mark's a physician might, and know more about this as well, but my understanding from the literature and certainly our mice as well, is that increasing their diet and increasing protein can help them, um, you know, nutritionally, um, you know, stay alive, but it does not prevent the cachexia. It does not reverse the cachexia and it doesn't, um, it, it it doesn't stop it so that I know from a number of um, patients that I've um, actually interacted with on this topic that you know they, they cannot eat their way out of uh, cachexia unfortunately. Um, but it can obviously provide energy and nutrition for the brain and other tissues, but it doesn't stop the cachexia. That's,
0: that's my understanding yeah. as well, Kate. So I know um, we're coming at this from a research perspective. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, to see if you have thoughts or knowledge on how this early detection is going to affect treatment for pancreatic cancer patients. Well, that's another great question that <laughs> I don't have an
2: answer to. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that uh, in the in the chemo prevention literature, uh, there have been many trials in the colon and, and, and mostly not... Not giving us much guidance. I mean, aspirin has, has, has gotten a lot of play, and there's still a lot of interest in aspirin in terms of its uh, ability to prevent colon cancer. But other things such as vitamin D and, and, and a number of other agents, uh, fiber in the diet, etc., have not. My own feeling is that until we have a reliable test for early lesions, we can't really address whether we can prevent it. Um, and of course, there, the, the, the the clinical dilemma of whether to do a Whipple procedure or not is a huge one. I mean, it's a, it's a huge operation. And it, it, in patients who are at high risk, of course, you can sample the pancreas with fine needle aspirations. And if you get malignant cells and you stage them as resectable, then there's no question they should have, a, have, have an operation. But in terms of deciding, you know, what to do at a stage where they're not yet not yet advanced, that's, I think that remains a a big conundrum clinically.
0: And So from, from listening to the three of you tonight, it sounds like the, the history piece of it, um, is, is pretty big. And so those who are not at risk at all, where it comes out of the blue, if you will, um, that there's, is, is there any research for, for that type?
2: So that's the sporadic pancreatic cancer, as opposed to the familial, and that's most most pancreatic cancer, in fact, are sporadic. There are people that comes out of the blue; they know they don't have a family history. And my hope is that a blood test. You know, there there, there are a number of blood tests that are being done now that are sort of pan-oncogene tests. They're looking they're looking at many cancers. They're not focusing on just colon or just pancreas. And my hope is that maybe the 5-HMC, 5-MC story or something like that, will serve such a purpose that we'll, we'll see the detection of cells being entering the bloodstream, which are abnormal in their signature. They don't look normal by DNA signature. And that will, that will set off bells to at least begin to investigate that. Uh, it, uh, you know, whether the problem right now is that imaging is not very sensitive so that if you, if you had abnormal cells and you did a CAT scan and it was negative and you did an endoscopy and an ultrasound and that was negative, what exactly do you do at that point? I think the most you could do is probably do the re- repeat the blood test on a regular basis. And if it looked as if the, the, the signature was good for the pancreas and the numbers were going up, you might have to make a very difficult clinical decision as to whether or not to operate.
0: Any
3: any other additions, Dr. McLeod or Dr. Hay? Okay, I agree. I think uh, the, the ultimate goal, this is the reason why hydrosis is interesting because we perform whole genome sequencing. So in principle, one can look at the colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and pancreatic uh, cancer in one experiment, or maybe more cancer types. Uh, for five muscle C, similarly, but it's much harder to do whole genome five muscle C there. The, 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 Panel based approach might be um, visible in the future.
2: Dr. Fee- I just no, look
3: at no. it, this imagery uh, test. Is, it's a CA19 test, so it's still a uh, protein based, but uh, um, they probably expanded with other biomarkers. Uh, so it's uh, still different from, from the, the test that we're, we're trying to achieve.
2: It's interesting. The ca nineteen nine was used on the PLCO samples and was actually had some. Some success in identifying patients who had not yet presented with pancreatic cancer, but were found to have an elevated CA19-9 in their in their pre you know in their early stages, but prior to their I mean at a time when they were asymptomatic and had no evident cancer. So my sense is that the test that Dr. He is working on is going to be much more sensitive than the CA19-9, and he's already published studies showing that the 5-HMC signature can identify differences between, for example, liver, pancreas, lung, ovarian cancers. So I I agree, I think that this could be very promising for looking across the board at many different tumor types.
0: So Dr. McLeod, you had um, touched upon this in in your presentation and I wanted to expand upon it. So the, the notion that pancreatic cancer receives so much less funding than other cancers when it has such a low survivor rate. Why? Why do you think that that is? And um, you know, you had mentioned you the the evolution of that. Can, can we talk about about that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Um, so it it has changed. I mean, I think historically, um, breast, prostate, obviously, lung cancer, colorectal cancer, were more prevalent. Um, and to some extent, it's understandable that more money did go in those directions. But uh, again, I think give. PanCan and people like Lynn Matresian a lot of credit for um, pointing out that by 2030, that pancreatic cancer will be the second deadliest cancer after lung cancer. And I think that statistic um, has, has woken people up. It has made people realize we've got to do something about that. Um, there is one angle to it that we haven't really touched on, and that is why is the incidence of pancreatic cancer increasing? We, you know, we, you know, we can talk about diabetes and obesity, um, but we really don't have a good scientific handle on, um, on what is causing the increase in incidence. Um, but as I said, you know again, th- there is more and more money going into pancreatic cancer uh, research. It's not just NIH and NCI. Uh, Just in the last year and a half, uh, the Department of Defense has set up a pancreatic cancer specific uh, set of uh, funding mechanisms. So I think people are, are, it is changing and uh, hopefully all that additional, those additional resources and people researching it will will make a difference. It's made a difference in the other cancers where that's happened. So um, one has to be optimistic. Dr. Bissonnette and, and Dr. He, do you have
0: anything to add on that notion?
3: Would second everything Kay said.
0: <laughs> so bear with I me on I this think
3: uh, Kay uh, just build a pancreatic uh, working group here on campus. They're meeting every other week. So we're yeah. making lots of efforts here on campus already.
1: Yeah, we have a um, pancreas cancer working group um, that started actually February 2020, I think the the first meeting was the the last when we met with you the last time, it was around that same time, um, and it's been going strong. Um, our new cancer center director has identified pancreatic cancer as an area that he wants us to develop um, more effort in. And... We are gonna be um, pulling together a SPORE grant next year. So that's um, a very translational effort. It takes exciting new scientific discoveries and make sure they get into the clinic and that they do have an impact for patients. So I think here, I mean, at the University of Chicago, I think we're particularly well-placed to have an impact. Um, Our surgeons are actually amongst some of the best in the world, um, you know, people like Jeff Matthews and Kevin Rogan. Um, and so that also gives us a, a resource that not other, other places don't, don't necessarily have. So I think the combination of the great clinicians and the, the exciting you know, basic research like Schwann's work and others I think is, I'm, is exciting. Um, obviously for our patient, the sooner we can get this together, the better um, time is of the essence. Absolutely, um, so bear
0: with me on this next one because there's, there's not a, a great direct correlation here, but I still want to make the analogy. We got the COVID vaccine so quickly because researchers from around the world partnered together. Um, they shared findings and basically did whatever it takes to, to make it happen. Why don't we see that with pancreatic cancer or any cancers for, for that matter?
1: I think, um, I think you're right. Um, I I do think that we do work together. I mean, I just mentioned the Pancreas Working Group. I think Pancan um, is an example of lots of different researchers in pancreatic cancer um, sharing data before it's published and collaborating and not necessarily just duplicating each other's work. Um, So I do think that is happening. Um, I think the issue is that pancreatic cancer is a much more challenging problem to solve I mean, it's hard to say that compared to COVID. I mean, COVID is, it's a virus. You've got a very obvious target. You've sure. got a, you've got a coat protein that you can raise an antibody to. Um, so that there's, there's, it's a, it's an easier target. It's an easier solution. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of work went into that, but it, it pancreatic cancer is much more challenging.
0: For sure. And, and by no means am, am I trying to, to minimize, um, minimize your work and, and the, everything that is doing. It was more the, the um, partnership yeah, and yeah, working yeah. together. Um, so what, what can we do? What can our community do to help?
3: I just want to add a, a few more comments following case comment. I think uh, basic biology is really the key for COVID. Uh, from basic bi- biology point of view, it's not really a a challenge at all. It's just a matter of time, because for the last half a century, the community have built so much basic biology on virus. If you really want to think about the hard virus, HIV will be one, right? Um, Because, you know, COVID and and flu will be another one. COVID is is, is a tough virus, but but in terms of basic biology, we know so much, and there's so much tools being developed. pancreatic cancer and the cancer in general is such a major beast that, uh, you know, intimately linked to human developmental biology, everything. Uh, we just don't have enough basic biological understanding. as K beautifully showed that this muscle to pancreatic communication, we don't even know the signals, right? Just so much new sense we need to learn. Um, it, I think we can make some immediate impacts potentially by developing biomarkers, but to really, um, fight or combat this cancer is going to be a long journey as, as also Mark indicated early on you can perhaps do section but then the later stage how you really deal with it is going to be challenging.
0: Sure. Thank you for that. Um, so what, what can our community do to help? What you know we, we, we're all out here we, we want to help you and, and, and help our, our family and friends. How can we do that?
1: Well, I mean, again, being too brutal. I mean, research is expensive, so the the funding is is really critical. I think one thing um, that you know support from an organization like Rolf allows us to do is to do things that are perhaps a little bit riskier and a little bit you know not wouldn't necessarily. Get funded at NIH, uh, you know, in its current form, but allows us to develop new ideas so that down the road we will get funded to do to continue the research. So I think um, that's where the funding is really very very useful. Um, I mean, again, um, I think if it's not an aspect of it I'm involved in, but I know in um, you know, people um, can you know donating samples to um, tissue repositories. And um, if you are involved in, uh, or w- want to become involved in a clinical trial, I know that our clinicians are always looking for, to enroll new patients in clinical trials, if if even as a control subject. Um, so that's something, not everybody is gonna to want to do that, but that's that's something I know our physicians, again, Mark probably can speak to that better than I can.
2: No, I think that's a really important thing. I think that uh, advocates of particular you know, problems like pancreatic cancer, by virtue of their family histories and their own stories, can provide an invaluable resource in terms of the blood that we're trying to make a biomarker from. So it's it's an important contribution, a
3: huge one.
0: And what do you expect to see in the days, months, and, and years ahead? or? or- I'll combine that with what. What are three takeaways? Maybe one from each of you um, that you would like our community to leave here with tonight.
2: I I think that there will be a biomarker for early pancreatic disease that will make a difference in this disease, and that's what we're working to to to
1: find. Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, um, you know, I think the idea that at least if we can mitigate tissue wasting, muscle wasting, that we can at least extend lifespan for patients. Um, uh, At the end of the day, we'll almost probably also need uh, new therapeutics. Um, So I think it was, you know, the early detection, new therapeutics and understanding ways to extend lifespan and make patients more responsive to the new therapeutics, I think will be really
0: really helpful. Dr. He? Yeah,
3: I will add that uh, I think a, a very quantitative um, uh, detection and analysis of a variety of biomarkers from pancreatic patients or tell us a lot about the tumor microenvironment, immune modulations, as well as why patients respond to certain therapy better than the other Therapy, of some patients do not respond to certain therapies. And number one, that will help hopefully in the future clinical um, um, treatment, but also um, provide the information for basic biology understandings and eventually leads to better treatment.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bissonnette, Dr. Who, uh, Dr., Um, excuse me, Dr. He, and Dr. McLeod um, for sharing such important research and, and findings with us tonight. It, it does give such hope for what's ahead. Um, and I just wanna thank you for, um, for sharing with us tonight and we look forward to seeing what's to come. Thank you all very much for listening. I also wanna thank everyone for joining us tonight. If you're catching the replay, you can go ahead and write replay in the comments with your question so that we can get back to you um, after we ask the doctors. I'd like to close tonight with something that Rolf's executive director, Stacia Hart, said to me during our conversation this morning. We were talking about the events of the past 24 hours, let alone the past year or two. Um, And and Stacia said, we're family and we're there no matter what. And it really hit me that she's right. That's what makes the Rolf team, the community so very special. It's the connections and the support from institutions like University of Chicago, our staff, our supporters, patients and their families, and that that make this community one of a kind, truly. The determination and the fight that we see from and with each of you, and the often gut-wrenching vulnerability and willingness to simply show up for those who who need us. On behalf of everyone at the Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation, we thank you so much for your support, and we send some love and light to you as we continue through this holiday season and into the new year. Until next time, stay healthy and take good care. Good night. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and feel free to leave a five star review because it helps people find us. Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation provides personal support to those affected by pancreatic cancer through tailored resources, connections in education, and funding for early detection research. To learn more about Ralph Foundation, please visit us at ralphfoundation.org or call 773 989 1108. We'll see you next time.